Welcome to What Really Happened. My name is Andrew Jenks. This podcast is produced by Dwayne The Rock Johnson, Danny Garcia, Brian Gewertz, Seven Bucks Productions, and Cadence 13. I have a really special announcement. The fourth reaction episode is coming soon on March 6th. Now, time for the episode. Stories are amazing. One of the few things that connects us all. Great stories can resonate around the world. Oftentimes, the best stories are complex, taking a long time and many drafts to get to that final form. But when finished, they appear or feel simple. If a story gets too complicated, the audience is lost. Jean-Luc Godard said, Sometimes reality is too complex. Stories give it form. When we're born, we're told bedtime stories. Towards the end of life, we look back and think about our life story. I learned this after living in a nursing home for five weeks when I was 19, and when I watched and edited the footage while making the documentary, I was time and time again reminded that the residents I lived with would reflect on the characters, if you will, that had been in their lives. Characters who were brothers, sisters, lovers who came and went, lovers who lasted a lifetime, work enemies or people that got to them. All of the senior citizens talked about what they were most proud of or the decisions they regretted, the ups and the downs. Each resident had his or her own unique story. These days, there are more stories available to us than in the history of mankind. But as exciting as that is, it also creates a problem, I think, because it takes diligence and time to understand the veracity of a story. Who is telling the story? How are they telling the story? And perhaps most interesting of all, why are they telling the story? What are their intentions? When public figures are in the news, it's not so uncommon that there is a reason. They are selling us something. This past week, former acting attorney general Andrew McCabe has come out with a series of revelations about President Trump. It's been all over cable news, in the newspapers, you name it. McCabe is selling a book. It doesn't mean what he's saying is not important, but it's wildly inappropriate to not realize selling a book is one of his main intentions. I've been somewhat disappointed to not hear many of those interviewing him asking, which you can do in a totally respectful way, how much of this is about selling books. Maybe he's rich and it has nothing to do with that, I don't know. And then just two weeks ago, it was Cliff Sims selling his book about his time as a quote-unquote insider to the Trump administration. Or wait a second, was it Chris Christie selling his book about his time with Trump during the election? Actually, I think it turns out it was both. They are selling their stories as news. And while there is some news within their stories, they're really, I think, masking all of it as a way to make money. A few years ago, I went on a college speaking tour, about 25 universities or so. I'll never forget this one moment at a college I spoke at. The name and city has escaped me, but per the usual, I spoke for an hour and then did a Q&A for about 30 minutes. During this Q&A, a student asked me, what are your reasons for coming here to speak? I'd never heard this question. Usually students would be asking follow-ups to what I talked about, asking about the documentaries I've made, the characters in my stories, but why was I on a speaking tour, or specifically in this instance, speaking at this college? I like to really think, ideally, before giving an answer, avoiding the cliche stuff, but 
This one stumped me. Why was I traveling the country telling my story? Well, there was many reasons, but truthfully, it had become a huge source of income. Anthony Bourdain said on the Mark Marin podcast that it wasn't his best-selling books, it wasn't his hit TV show, but it was his speaking gigs that had made him by far the most money. I'll never forget the sheer disappointment this student showed when I answered the question. Well, I said, first off, I'm getting paid. I then continued to talk about the other reasons. It was a chance to hear from students what they thought of my work. And really, really for me, it was a chance to do a performance of sorts, live. It was a challenge that I really still get a thrill out of. You're handed a microphone, an empty stage, and for 90 minutes, it's my job to tell stories in front of a few hundred, sometimes a few thousand people. Sometimes people know me, they know my work, and sometimes they have no idea. It's really just an awesome challenge. With documentaries, I spend months or years working on something, and then the product is released and you hope for the best. With this podcast, I see your reaction on social media or when you leave comments by calling in or emailing me, and sometimes we even do talk. But this, this speaking tour and speaking events I still do, is a chance for me to tell stories and get immediate reactions. And as I'm talking, I'm taking in what the audience is or is not reacting to. I'll think to myself, oh, that story got a laugh. Maybe think about going back to that later on to tell the funniest part. Or I'll think, oh, this story has them entranced. Keep going a step further and they'll really feel the drama of that moment. Or the opposite happens. Man, that bombed. That story didn't resonate at all. Okay, for the time left, avoid that topic. It reminds me, there was one time I was cursing at a, um, I think it was a really religious or all-Catholic school, and I had been cursing for the first 30 minutes. Everyone was looking at me, like, just just flat faces. And finally, someone uh, offstage told me I, uh, in the contract, I wasn't, said specifically I wasn't supposed to curse. And so I adjusted accordingly. I think I still got paid. Anyway, telling stories live, reading the audience and adjusting accordingly is awesome. And for a guy like me, it's it's like editing a movie on the spot, sorting out the story as I'm going. Of course, I have a bunch of different stories that I pull from, and I could just read from a script, but I want to make the most of the audience's time. Truthfully, I don't know if that's what I ended up saying, because I really did see this sheer disappointment from that college student's reaction to my answer as to why I was there in the first place. Money. I got a tweet later that night. I'll never forget it. It read something like, I really liked Andrew Jenks' stories tonight. He was interesting, but he lost me when he said he was doing this for money. My transparency bit me in the ass. Maybe I was being too earnest. Maybe it was obvious. Of course I'm getting paid. But if that college didn't offer me money, would I have traveled out there? Unless it was for a good cause or a special event, which is obviously something that happens quite a bit, the answer is simple. No. Former Obama White House official Ben Rhodes wrote a book about his story of his eight years with the president. It's titled, The World As It Is, A Memoir of the Obama White House. And this book I really enjoyed, not because I agree with everything that Ben Rhodes says or believes in, but because throughout the book, he was transparent about something in particular— Ben and Obama really believe that every word the president said in every speech was part of a story they were telling the American people. I was kind of stunned by this 
specific self-awareness of telling stories, and I learned quite a bit. It became clear that the former president really understands the profound impact of storytelling. Don't forget, he was a best-selling author and writer before he was president, and he's now working on, among other things, TV shows for Netflix. And despite what many may think, the current president is, in some ways, similar. He was a TV star before he was president. In fact, I read an article from a few years back about President Trump. To be forthright, I can't find it, but it went something like the following. Trump told a journalist he was surprised The Apprentice was such a hit. The reporter rolled his or her eyes, not buying Trump's attempt at humility. Sure, you were surprised. But Trump persisted. No, think about it, he said. At the end of every episode, I tell somebody they're fired. That's most people's worst nightmare. And that is me, Trump, playing the bad guy role. I'm the angry boss. Yet people love me. Trump saw there was a taste for the anti-hero, a central character in a story, movie, or drama who lacks conventional heroic attributes. I've wondered for the last couple of years, what role did this play in Trump knowing that this could play well when running for office, that a fed-up businessman turned politician could sell? Now, going back to Obama's right-hand man, Ben Rhodes, he was out selling his book a few months ago. He was on talk shows, morning shows, getting as much press as possible to sell the book. I saw an opportunity. I was working on our episode about both the Situation Room photo during the Bin Laden raid and what happened in Cuba in our episode, The Secret Sonic War. Ben played a big role in the Cuban thaw during Obama's years, and he was there that day during the Bin Laden raid and was just outside when that photo was taken in the Situation Room during the Bin Laden raid. Because of all of you, we've been an Apple number one podcast, and so he agreed to come on our show. So it worked out well for both of us. He could name drop the book, I could get insight on stories I was telling. In this part of the interview, Rhodes mentions that President Obama was the only candidate when facing both Hillary Clinton in the primary and then John McCain in the general election that said he would go into Pakistan to kill bin Laden. He was heavily criticized for saying this. The other candidates said they would be breaking a trust with Pakistan and another country's sovereignty. But Obama didn't back down. If president, he would do whatever it took to kill bin Laden. Again, this was during a time when other politicians were saying killing bin Laden was no longer as important as other components going on in the war. This is from the interview with Ben. You say uh, in the book, uh, you, you talk at length about the importance of storytelling and how the president would uh, really incorporate that throughout so much of what he would talk about. Knowing the profound importance of story, do you think that's one of the reasons the president made killing bin Laden such an integral part in shaping how he looked at terrorism, that this was a chapter in American history that people wanted to see close? I think uh, that's an interesting way to approach it, because I think what was apparent to us at the beginning of the Obama administration, even in the campaign, is that the wars that were launched after 9-11 in Afghanistan and then Iraq and this more amorphous global war on terrorism were not going to lead to clear endpoints. There was not going to be a surrender ceremony like at the end of World War II. And there had to be some sense for the American people that 
justice was delivered for 9-11, that we dealt with the people who did this to us, um, you know, both for our own national psyche, but also to try to right-size our approach to terrorism so that we don't feel like we are uh, needing to be uh, overextended in the way that, that we have been. And so, uh, you know, the, I write about in the book, walking out of the White House the night after bin Laden was killed and seeing all the people in the streets and seeing people who, you know, had grown up their whole lives in a way uh, with this reality. And, and it felt like the closest thing we were going to get to that type of psychic endpoint. Like any good book from a Republican, Democrat, Independent, you are reminded of nuance, of how reading just the headlines is such a problem. Although Ben doesn't mention headlines, I think, at all in the book, I wanted to ask him about that, how headlines can shape the story before we read the story, if we read the story at all. I was surprised he kind of took to my question. Something that kept popping into my mind, sort of peppered throughout uh, while reading, was I wonder if Ben Rhodes thinks that writers, uh, newspaper writers, magazine writers, uh, journalists should also write their own headlines? Oh, I, th- you know, I think that's one of the biggest changes that could be made to improve the the, the media coverage of of certainly politics. Um, I cannot tell you how many times uh, there'd be some headline on a story that. I thought was way off or an oversimplification or trivialization. And I'd call the report and they say, well, I don't write the headlines. You right. know? Um, and what you don't realize though is most people only read the headlines. You know, they scan <laughs> yeah. Twitter or they scan the newspaper and the newsstand. And, and I think headlines like Chiron's on the bottom of a cable news screen tend to distill a story into the most trivialized eye-catching fashion and it plays up the he said, she said of politics. It plays up scandal when there may be none. And I think it, it serves to kind of degrade our, our discourse. Uh, that's kind of the dynamic that Trump stepped into because we see today, whatever Trump says can be a headline. You know, Trump says, end the witch hunt. Hmm. Right? Well, that's all some people see. They don't see then the caveats in the first paragraph that, that there's nothing to support what <laughs> Trump said. And um so I do think that one way to begin to address that uh, would be if the writers themselves wrote the headlines, because sometimes the uh, whoever the headline writer is, is just, you know, they're trying to either package it in the most sensationalist way or, or in some cases, the laziest way. Obviously, selling a story goes far beyond politics. When Andrew Stanton and Disney were out promoting his 2012 science fiction action film, John Carter, he ran into a big problem. Stanton, who was the director of the film, and the studio couldn't find out a way to sell the story of the movie to audiences. The trailers of the film, even the movie posters, confused people. Nobody got an idea of what the film was really about. And for me, this is where things got really interesting. Because we can, in a way, all take part in explaining a story. It doesn't just have to be Andrew Stanton and Disney. In other words, In Los Angeles, there was a huge fan of John Carter and the books. His name is Michael Sellers. Sellers was formerly in the CIA and a smart guy. And so while he saw the trailer and other marketing materials going out, he decided to take action. He decided he wanted to try and help. Only a decade prior, this wouldn't be possible. You could write letters, I suppose, to the studio, but it'd be really swimming upstream. 
This is from our episode, John Carter, The Anatomy of a Box Office Flop. Well, unless Michael Sellers can do something. Sitting on the couch at home, he's shaking his head, demoralized. What the hell was that? But as he learned from none other than John Carter, it wasn't going to deter him. So that night, in a fit of, I think, sort of, uh, yeah, in a fit of frustration, I said, I can cut my own trailer. Let's just do it. And I sat down and did it. And that's how that trailer got cut. Oh. When I cut the trailer, I didn't release it publicly other than to put it on the John Carter files for about a day and get a hundred reactions to it. So I put it up next to the Disney trailer and didn't say where it came from and asked people to vote. And I got 86% voted for the new trailer and 14% for the Disney trailer. So then I sent it to Disney and said, this is the reaction of this focus group. And then nothing happened. And uh, Disney didn't react. Ryan didn't. Nobody wrote me back to me. And so after about a week, I went ahead and published it on YouTube. And then that was the point at which I was at that point, I was in touch with some of the people that had been on the production crew of John Carter. And one of them forwarded it to Andrew Stanton. And then Andrew Stanton liked it. And he tweeted about it. And then it got, that trailer got a lot of attention. And Sellers here is shortchanging himself. Wired, Entertainment Weekly, The Hollywood Reporter, The LA Times, CNN, and many, many more sites. Over 200 websites all run glowing reviews about his trailer. Ain't It Cool News, a popular film website, embeds the trailer with the headline, A fan-made trailer sells John Carter better than any other trailer so far. The story of Seller's trailer told me this was a movie that was the granddaddy of the great franchises, the great superheroes of all time. On the 100th anniversary of the book that inspired Avatar, Superman, and Star Wars, from two-time Academy Award-winning director, we present John Carter. Damn. Unfortunately. So it was kind of cool and got a lot of attention, but it was very late in the game. It was about you know, 10 days before the release, I think, or maybe a little bit more. Yeah. So it had, it, it became an item of discussion. Seth Godin inducted into the American Marketing Association's Marketing Hall of Fame in 2018, which I guess is a thing, once said, marketing is no longer about the stuff you make, but about the stories you tell. And this became an issue with the marketing of John Carter. So that was from the John Carter Anatomy of a Box Office Flop episode. What I realized from this was how a narrative about a story can really take over. It can kill the story you're trying to tell before people even open that first page, or in this case, before they even get to the theater, as many people didn't with John Carter. I really love that Seth Godin quote, marketing is no longer about the stuff that you make, but about the stories you tell. Think about that infamous Kendall Jenner commercial recovered this year. It was only out for a day and only online, but the story about the commercial was so disastrous, they had to pull it, even though it'll live on in infamy. I think about our episode, Secret Sonic War. As you may remember, the episode is about what's been going on in Cuba. U.S. and Canadian diplomats have been getting terrifyingly sick in Cuba. There's no question about this. Additionally, the people who've gotten sick have also been hearing bizarre and piercing noises. And so, reputable news organizations, uh, TV shows, politicians, otherwise relatively reliable sources have wondered if it was a sonic attack. 
an attack by a rogue group within Cuba, maybe the Russians, maybe these people were attacking diplomats using sonic weapons, something I had never heard of before. It was a compelling theory, and you can look it up in the news. Search sonic attack or sonic weapon, and you'll see a slew of stories about embassy officials in Cuba attacked by sound. But as my months of research continued, I realized something incredible. There is no such thing as a sonic weapon. Our imagination, our love for a good story had taken over. No expert I could find knew of what an actual sonic weapon was in the way in which it was being described by those who had actually gotten injured. Instead, the experts said it was perhaps something far less sexy, something that won't grab your attention on cable TV and won't get you to actually stop on your Twitter feed. Instead, it could likely have been insects, black market foods, something called functional disorders. But again, once I'd spoken with ex-CIA officials and different journalists who had actually been on the ground in Cuba, sonic weapons? Unlikely. And then there was our episode on the Balloon Boy hoax, when a family was seemingly trying to get their own reality show. In order to do this, it seemed like the father built an air balloon that looked like a flying saucer. And then, when the flying saucer took off, he called 911 and said that his little boy was stuck in it. And the media went mad. This part is from the episode. Eventually, cable news catches wind and goes live. Live on Fox News. One of the strangest things in the history of my television career is going down. Live on CNN. If you are predisposed to do so and you want to say a little prayer, you might want to do so now. Live around the world. Authorities here rushing, rushing towards this balloon. And if you think you've heard the full story, I beg to differ. What in the world? Where am I? What just happened? Where is my mommy? For those of you who are just joining us, we believe there is a little boy in this balloon, and it's been flying now for about an hour at least. If you're sitting in your living room watching it, I'm sure you are just as bewildered and befuddled as all the rest of us. Is this some sort of prank? I changed the channel to see if others are covering this. Oh, yep, they are. Uh, this was not meant to go higher than 20 feet. Exactly. Certainly not the, the 10,000, 12,000 feet. And ever. the neighbor said it wasn't meant to be a manned aircraft. Never. It's a six-year-old boy who is inside an experimental balloon. Well, it's very small, but right. the compartment where, where Falcon, we believe he is, is incredibly small. This balloon apparently made to track storms in Colorado by a storm chaser kind of guy. This makes normal breaking news look like an episode of the C-SPAN book hour. Unless you're into that sort of thing, in which case, well, whatever, it doesn't matter. We got a flying saucer on our hands. I, I, I'd hate to see. I, we, this could be an optical illusion, but I mean, you see those power lines oh down boy. there. It just makes your stomach, just makes your stomach turn. I'm watching it from many different angles. I'm confused. All we need to know is how is little Falcon Heaney? And that's all. That's, <laughs> that's all, all that's we right. need to know. Absolutely yeah. true. That's what this has all been about. Millions, and that is not an exaggeration, are now watching. But what we were all watching is unclear. Regardless, cable news has one hell of a story. It's, it's, a, it's a pretty strong piece of 
whatever it is, Jiffy Pop popcorn bag looking thing. We've all been holding our breath for about an hour now. You know, every day, one thing about this job is, and every day you come to work, you don't know what the hell's about to happen. But all of a sudden, they're chasing a six-year-old boy flying around in a balloon from county to county. He's in there. One of my favorite interviews from this year was with Bob Thompson, a legendary media expert. He was able to artfully talk about the media's obsession with this news item, the balloon boy hoax, as a story. You'll hear him bring up story quite a bit, although I hadn't specifically asked him about the story. Well, yeah, that was almost 10 years ago, and I, I think, yes, it's, it's absolutely true. If all the circumstances of Balloon Boy story were to happen again today, I think it would go down in a very, very similar kind of, kind of way. So the wake-up call was that this, of course, turned out to be completely not a story. Um, it's not a story that I think national media should have been following, even if it had, been, uh, uh, had not been a, a hoax. And not only did they follow it throughout its whole, you know, big, long, uh, 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 tragic period, but then they continued to follow up with it uh, uh, all through the next day in ways that were comically ridiculous. But I think given the nature of our news organizations, which depend upon maximizing audiences because they sell audiences uh, to advertisers, that's their income stream. There's no way that this story could not have been followed the way it was, and I think there's no way that we won't continue to uh, to do it. I mean, when you look at what this this had going for it, I mean, it's a it, it's a, a silver thing shaped like a flying saucer. We think that it has swept up a six-year-old child. This goes back to the deepest part of our fears, uh, fairy tales about being swept up by flying beasts and all the rest of it. Just for good measure, the kid's name is Falcon. How much, I mean, how more perfect could uh, uh, that have been? Again, that was from our episode, Balloon Boy. I want to end with how all of this pertains to not just news or films or conspiracy theories, but history. History obviously has the word story in it. Is that a coincidence? I once wrote a script for ABC Studios where a female protagonist says, you know history is bullshit, seeing as it's broken down into his story. An executive sent me an email. Um, I don't think that's true. Damn it, I thought. Unsure if it was or wasn't, it was a fictional script. I hate when the truth gets in the way. So the other day I looked into this. What is the deal with that word? History. Oxford English Dictionary's Philip Durkin said, the term history has evolved from an ancient Greek verb that means to know. Time Magazine wrote, the Greek word historia originally meant inquiry, the act of seeking knowledge, as well as the knowledge that results from inquiry. And from there, it's a short jump to the accounts of events that a person might put together from making inquiries, what we might call stories. The words story and history share much of their lineage, and in previous eras, the overlap between them was much messier than it is today. Said Durkin, that working out of distinction has taken centuries and centuries. Today, we might think of the dividing line as the one between fact and fiction. Stories are fanciful tales woven at bedtime, the plots of melodramatic soap operas. That word can even be used to describe an outright lie. Histories, on the other hand, are records of events. That word applies to 
all time preceding this very moment and everything that really happened up to now. For me, it remains complicated. How often do you hear that a reporter broke a story, opposed to a reporter breaking new facts? Last, there was my interview this year with Michael Pye, historian and author. Parts of this interview were, well, I think, epic. He talked about how now more than ever is an incredible time for historians to bring the stories of the past to life. With the ability to access information from databases, communicate with people across the globe, use satellite imagery when examining archaeology, we live in a time when it's beyond exciting to examine the past. He talked to me about the history of the North Sea, which is a marginal sea in the Atlantic Ocean located between the UK, Denmark, Norway, Sweden, Germany, the Netherlands, Belgium, and France. He had noticed we had misunderstood much of that history. And what he found changed the story of this location and what we think happened there, particularly during the Middle Ages. This is from my interview with him, which was for our episode, The Lost King. I tell you what changes things, what changes history. We lose history. We had one wonderful example in, in Domburg on the Dutch coast, which is now a nice seaside place, and you can get ice creams and you can play golf. In the 17th century, on one day, all of a sudden the tides changed. They went out further than usual, and the wind changed, and the dunes changed shape, and the sand and the water was just in different places. And all of a sudden, on that beach, there was a Roman temple, there was the remains of a Roman port. There was a whole story of where the Romans had been and what they'd done. And a story that the Romans actually never bothered to write down because the Romans were surprisingly provincial. I mean, they wrote about Rome, yes. They knew about Rome, and they knew about anywhere that sent a great deal of money to Rome. But they didn't know about Domburg. And what happened after that was, in a way, almost more extraordinary. It was almost more extraordinary. The tide came in and went out again, and went in again. And the winds changed, and the dunes changed, and all sorts of other stories kept coming back. Suddenly there was a graveyard with all the bodies with their heads together in a circle. Suddenly there was a line of what looked like they'd once been wooden warehouses along the edge of the water. All of these things had gone, and all of them represented different stories about that place. And yet all that we really knew about that place in the so-called Dark Ages was that there had been a rather nasty Viking raid and a lot of women and a lot of money had been taken off and that a saint had come doing missionary work and had been hit on the head rather abruptly and being a saint, of course, he miraculously survived. The poor man who hit him on the head unfortunately didn't, but then you don't if you run up against saints. And what we have is something quite extraordinary. We have story after story that never got written down because nobody wanted to write it down. You know, it didn't prove that a, a cathedral owned a bit of land or a lord had particular rights. It didn't prove anything like that. And it was a story that was immensely complicated because it was one story after another. It was all the rich textures of one story after another. Now, that came back only because the sea happened to move in a particular way. The sand shifted, the tides shifted, and miraculously because of that, 
suddenly we could see something that you wouldn't expect. All of a sudden, the Dark Ages were not the kind of things you get in the, the annals of cathedrals or monasteries who write down all the times they were really offended and all the times they were assaulted and all the times they were burnt down. No, it isn't that at all. If, in fact, if there's an archaeology done around Domburg, you can't actually find the bodies from all of these supposed battles and you can't find the burnt ground from all the times that the place is supposed to have been put to the flame. Now, what you have is people's lives, people's continuous lives. You have the trade that went in and out through a Roman port, then later through a port which might have been Frisian or might have been something else. Later, a Viking settlement, but a settlement actually to stay there and to form families and households. And you have a story of the way people lived, not just the way people died. And what fascinates me is that if we try to tell the story of the Middle Ages as the story of the times when people lived, and not just the times when people died horribly, all of a sudden we have something that is infinitely richer than we might expect, and completely unexpected. It's, the, the wonderful thing about it is that it, it throws everything in the air. What it means is that all of the things that we think of as being, I don't know, um, somehow they, they start late, they start about the Renaissance. All of the things that we think start then actually start so much earlier. People had lives. I think I'm really just at the tip of the iceberg in terms of understanding the dynamics of story, the role story has played in the past, and all of the ways in which it can play out in the future. But what I've been reminded with all of these topics is the ways in which we manipulate stories, not necessarily in a bad way, but in a way that should make us even more aware, even skeptical, of who is telling us what really happened. 